Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. We're so happy to have him. Please welcome Shelley Lowenkong. I'm glad to be here, and given the nature of this place, the independent nature and the friendly nature and the serious and knowledgeable nature of it, I hope you're all happy to be in independent bookstores too. These are the places to be. You heard it here. I hope not the first time. I want to read to you a brief scene that takes place in about the middle of a rather, well, let's call it lugubrious short story, although my agent, Tony Lopopolo, has warned me on the way down. She said, don't use words like that. (laughs) She meant short story. She likes novels, you know, ka-ching, ka-ching, sales, sales. But I've always found something really exciting even more so in short story than than in any other form and so it's far and away my favorite so this comes from a short story called death watches and the protagonist is a an academic of the sort i try very hard not to be because he is lugubrious, and as you can quickly see, I'm not. And uh, he's had some really sad news and some tough news, and he's just had the rug pulled out from under him and has broken off a potential relationship with an excuse that he has an appointment at the cat shelter where he is going to adopt a cat. And so that's where we begin, where he is thinking uh, as he drives to the Santa Barbara Animal Shelter. The cat at the animal shelter was another matter. There was no such cat. Langer, in fact, had no idea where the notion of a cat had come from. But now, having used the cat at the animal shelter as a part of the landscape of his moral high ground in confronting Maggie, Langer felt obliged to visit the animal shelter, look at cats, and give serious consideration to bringing one home. He drove toward the animal shelter on Overpass Road, allowing the idea of a cat in his life to sink in. By the time he pulled off the freeway and on to Patterson, the idea seemed not to be at all that strange. It might even be comforting to have another living being prowling and fussing among his books, papers, and record collection. Someone with ears to scratch. 
Someone to share tidbits of liver. Someone to pounce on Langer's bed at four in the morning, kneading and purring on the bedclothes. For a time, the animal shelter reminded him of visiting friends in the hospital. There was an all-pervasive scent of some solvent that all institutions sprayed about to make the surroundings seem clean and efficient, whether they were or not. Men with ponytails wrapped in rubber bands strode with purpose, wearing Rockport brogans that sounded on the wax floors like suppressed giggles. Volunteer women who appeared as though they would burst into tears over the slightest hitch in the universe, hovered over counters, chewing on pencils and neatening stacks of flyers, heralding the virtues of neutering or spaying cats. Langer was led into a corridor of wall-to-wall, wall-to-ceiling cat cages by an earnest young woman with a tattoo of her astrological sign, proud to be an Aries, on her shoulder. He decided he would look for a suitable male whom he would name Abelard. But in the course of his peering into cages and being alternately hissed at or ignored, he came upon a splotched tricolor whose air of total confidence won him over. When he reached into the cage, the cat butted her head against his hand. Very well, he told the cat. You shall be Heloise. But when Langer returned to the main office to claim the prize, he was served by a woman who wore a turtleneck sweater and tied her straw-colored hair into a severe bun. He put the paperwork in front of the woman. I'm claiming cat number 34. The woman's name tag, also supporting the imperative to spay or neuter cats, designated her as Claudia. She studied him for a long, critical moment. I'm very sorry, Claudia said. I can't let you take her. In the moment since Langer had made his choice of Heloise, he'd already come to have proprietary feelings about her. There was no sign on the cage indicating she'd been spoken for. She hasn't been. Claudia splayed both hands on the counter. I simply can't let you take her. This is a place that puts cats up for adoption, Langer said. I have found a cat I very much fancy. I wish to adopt her. Claudia shook her head. My sorrow is genuine. Langer felt himself grow cautious. I think we've managed to get off on the wrong foot somehow, he ventured. I hope to adopt cat number 34. I'll give her a good home, take good care of her, make sure she gets all her shots. Claudia plucked the registration card from Langer and scanned it. She's had her shots. Then, I'm afraid I don't understand. Why can't I have this cat? Claudia consulted the form again. Mr. Langer, is it? She paused to allow Langer to ratify himself with a nod. I can't let you have this cat, Mr. Langer, because you are not a cat person. <laughs> Excuse me? You don't relate well to cats. 
I come here for the purpose of adopting a cat. I find one to my liking and propose to take it home, yet you stand there and tell me I don't relate to cats? That is not rational. Claudia's eyes met his with an incandescent surge. I know, Mr. Langer. Not being a cat person isn't a rational thing. How can you... Langer became aware of people in the office beginning to look at him. He lowered his voice. How can you make such a snap judgment? You hardly know me. Langer felt his passion rise. He no longer cared if he was speaking in a loud voice. Look, I want that cat. You have no right to withhold that cat. Claudia offered him a sweet smile. You're probably a very nice man, Mr. Langer. I'm sure you contribute more than you'd share to society. You undoubtedly friend, have friends who think the world of you, and a family who, I don't have a family, Langer said. Why do you think I want a cat? <laughs> I'm sorry for your plight, Mr. Langer, Claudia said. I truly am, but if it's any comfort to you, some people just aren't cat people, and you happen to be one of them. If it's any comfort to you, I am not a mister, I am a professor, and you are not only, and you are not my only recourse. There's more than one way. There, Claudia said, you see, I was right. All along, I was right. Thank you, thank you. Thank you very much for that. It's a lot of fun. We'll be seeing him a little bit later. Um, now, for Christopher Meeks. Applaud. <laughs> Why we're here tonight. Christopher Meeks has four novels and two collections of short fiction published. His most recent novel is the acclaimed thriller Blood Drama. His novel, The Brightest Moon of the Century, made the list of three book critics, ten best books of 2009. Love at Absolute Zero also made three best books of 2011. Oh, oh, three. Wow, all that. As well as earning a Forward Reviews, Forward Reviews Book of the Year finalist award. He has had stories published in several literary journals, and the stories have been included in the collection Months and Seasons. And the Middle-Aged Man and the Sea. Mr. Meeks has had three full-length plays mounted in L.A. And the one who lives was nominated for five Ovation Awards, L.A.'s top theater prize. We're so very happy to have him. Please welcome Christopher Meeks. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, you know, years ago, the reason I became an author is so I wouldn't have to be in front of people. <laughs> uh, and into that regard, tonight's special, because uh, before I do a little reading, I'm offering you the world premiere of uh, a little short film based on this book. And I won't say anything else. You'll just get to see it, because now Skylight Books has... has uh, Monitor. Yep. It's 
that shown. Can you get those lights on? Well, there it is. All right, there you go. Now you can start. which she slept in, lay hastily discarded on the floor. Also on the floor was her inhaler next to her blue purse, spilling its contents. Patton picked up the inhaler and pressed down. It was empty. He strode into the steamy bathroom. She wasn't in the shower, though the shower was still pouring out steamy water. Patton turned it off. He stepped into the living room. Near his guitar, Chatterley crouched naked on her knees before the long, wide air conditioner. He touched her to wake her. Her skin was cold. She splayed onto her side. She didn't appear to breathe. She stared skyward as if frozen in surprise. So ends the first chapter.
reading. I'm a huge fan of your work. Could you sign this? Yeah, to who? Just Chatterley. Like my character, huh?
starting tomorrow, you'll have a link and you can make it go viral if you want. <laughs> uh, I have to thank Samuel Gonzalez Jr. If, if you could stand up. And in our Q&A soon, I'll, I'll uh, talk about this, but it, he's certainly stretched my boundaries <laughs> as, a, as, a, as an author. And I thought I would just read very briefly uh, a scene that follows what you just saw. Uh, when a hard knock came to the door, Patton stood and swayed for a second, dizzy. The room's table lamps, all on, seemed too bright. The hotel security guy had arrived 10 minutes earlier, a skinny man whose name on his six-pointed security guard star said Henderson. In his late 20s with a crew cut, he strode past Patton to the door. Henderson opened the door, adjusting his posture straighter as if to impress. Two young uniformed policemen stood on the other side. One a tall, gangly Hispanic man, more like a scarecrow, with the name tag that said Jimenez. The other a burly coffee-skinned man whose tag said Kelly. His stare suggested he'd slap the nose off of Patton's face if Patton said the wrong thing. Patton stood in place, wondering what to do with his hands, which felt out of place as fish heads. Metropolitan police read the, read the policeman's arm patches. Both officers eyed Patton as if they had their man. Officer Jimenez, said Henderson, I don't know your partner. Uh, this is Officer Kelly, new from New York. Henderson shook Jimenez's hand, as well as the hand of the other cop, Kelly. This is Patton Birch, said Henderson. He woke up and his girlfriend was dead. She's over there. Henderson pointed. She's not my girlfriend, said Patton. She was working for me. Call girl, you mean? Jimenez pulled out a notepad and pen. No, I mean I have a beneficial bugs company and she was working for me at the convention as a model. Jimenez made a few notes. So your employee was spending the night. Patton paused at the odd sound of the question, then nodded. Well, she felt sick. When she fell asleep, I let her stay. Nothing intimate happened. Officer Kelly went over to Chatterley, who was covered by a shiny blue bedspread which Patton had yanked off the bed. Patton had not wanted her spread-eagled for the world. Kelly pulled off the blanket, and his eyes flared up in surprise. She wasn't lacking in the looks department. Nothing intimate, you say? That's not nice, said Patton. These men seemed like frat boys in uniform. He could be their father. Kelly extracted what looked like a tissue box from his pocket, tugged out a single latex glove, and inserted his hand. Can you describe how she died, asked Jimenez, looking over at his partner, who had his gloved hand on Chatterley's neck and shook his head. No pulse. I don't know how she died. This is how I found her when I awoke. Naked on the floor here? She was crouched in front of the air conditioner and looked asleep. When I touched her to wake her, she fell over, and I saw she was dead. And I don't understand why. She was fine last night. You said earlier she was sick. Fine. I mean, she was alive, but she was sick. Sick how? To her stomach. When I woke up, the shower was on, so I assumed she was in the shower. She wasn't. She was here. What's her full name? Chatterley is all I know. My business partner hired her through a reputable modeling agency. He didn't say that his business partner was his wife. Patton didn't want to bring Tess into this if he could help it. 
Chatterley sounds like a call girl name. Eh, Henderson, said Jimenez. Yep, hot babes to you, said the hotel man as if quoting something. Henderson stared at Chatterley. She's a nice young woman who is going to college, modeling at conventions. A model, Henderson said, the way someone might say cunnilingus. Yeah, models like to work nights in hotels, said Kelly. Shove it, said Patton, jerking toward the guy without thinking. Jimenez grabbed Patton's arm. Slow down, buddy. Something you're not telling us? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Deja vu here. Deja vu. Uh, now we'll just get some stools and um, uh, Shelly will join me up here. Shelly, Shelly. There you are. And uh, thank you, Noel. Noel, but he's an author himself. He worked with me uh, at UCLA Extension teaching. I don't know if you still do that. Every once in a while I do. And introduction to fiction writing. And how to manage bookstores. <laughs> Around books. <laughs> And I, I will mention that Shelley was my very first fiction professor at USC. I taught him everything he knows. Yes, exactly. <laughs> he did. All right, questions? Yeah, um, we thought we would um, just start talking and let you interrupt us with, with um, some questions. And I started out by going public and admitting that I really admire short stories. I, I love novels, don't get me wrong, and I love nonfiction. In fact, my previous book has been nonfiction, and the one I'm working on now that he's bugging me for um, is nonfiction. But there's something about storytelling that's pretty exciting. Now, I notice you have at least one collection of short stories sandwiched among a number of novels. What's your preference? What's your take? Well, I, my first two books were collections of short yeah. stories, and um, it was all about sort of getting enough guts to write fiction and then getting enough guts to write a novel. I, mean, I think you're, you probably think of it reverse because short story writing is extremely hard to get something so powerful into a short amount of space but I have to say what a delight it is to live this life to be able to publish your short fiction collection well you know it's it's interesting because um, seeing our good pal and and, and uh, co-faculty member Lee Walkner in the audience and and Lee brought into our our um, our landscape, the sense of, of drama, and I was sort of always aware when I was writing and hanging around Lee of Lee sort of leaning over my shoulder or, or pulling a Hamlet's father's ghost on me and, and uh, talking about story is immediacy and anything else doesn't make it because it's stage direction or, or explanation and and so either way short story or novel it's got to be on and and moving otherwise it falls flat 
Don't you think that's one of the hard things to teach? That that the students can't be just giving fact, fact, fact? Funny you should mention that the hardest person it is to teach is me. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what rewriting and, and, um, and revision is, is for. But I take it from where you're going now that you're more sort of into the long form and like that. I've got another collection started. I My thought was this summer I'd, I was going to write another collection when uh, a good friend here, Samuel, uh, you know, we're, when we were working, we, we got talking about his life in Iraq. He, for him to get into film school, he went and fought in Iraq. And it was intense. And well, now, in order to get into USC, you've got to go fight Bridget, <laughs> but that's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> we had our own we had our own little war there. Academics, right. We won't go there. Can I ask a question? You better. Who is your favorite short story writer, or your favorite short story? Um, Talk about that and then you too. Well, without hesitation, my favorite living short story writer today is Deborah Eisenberg. But I just noticed in the current issue of New Yorker uh, a, a man I really uh, admire, and that's Thomas McGuane. And it, we sort of have this um, thing going because every time I, I get in a conversation with him, he suggests or recommends another novelist or somebody I haven't read and I get sidetracked for a, a couple of months but Deborah Eisenberg and then Louise Erdrich and then everybody else but but yeah oh John Cheever absolutely John Cheever and here's I've got another theory if you were to take anyone of the short stories in a in a collection that was published in 1902, it was called Dubliners, and published it in the New Yorker. It nobody would say anything except, yeah. oh, huh? There would be everything. It's a perfect yeah. story play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Off as a young man, everyone. When the snow was falling, there's that great realization, almost like a novel, not just a short story realization but a fully functional thing that this character has changed. So the short story collection itself becomes a novel when collectively considered. True, true, true enough. And, and I'm and glad you said that. Yeah, it, it's accurate, and I'm glad you said that because it you reminded me to get back to uh, Chris on something. The story you're talking about, The Dead, I think is is really a novella, which means it's, it's a little bit longer, sort of up there with, uh, say, of, of mice and men. So what I want to turn the gun on you about is you're putting together a, a collection of short stories. How about going a little longer on one and making it a novella? Well, I, I have a, a novella. And answer her in, question about your favorite. Uh, all right. I do. In... Uh, in Months and Seasons, I do have a, essentially a novella. It was a 55-page short story that was, uh, you, can't, you can't get those published needs, anywhere. Needs one more page. Yeah, it's a 56. Wait a minute, though. <laughs> Philip Roth, well, Jim Harrison, pick any 
uh, well, almost any Jim Harrison title here, and he's put together three novella, and he, in one book. Wow! And it, that makes it work. So, don't write length for market. Uh, yeah, I don't write. Length. Write for you. But my favorite short story writer living is Laurie Moore. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I discovered her in that nice intimidating title, The Greatest, uh, The Best Short Stories of the 20th Century. Mm -hmm. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Jeez. And the last story in it was Laurie Moore's, and I hadn't read her before until I got that. And Man, I'm a super fan of hers. Because one thing I discovered when I was writing short fiction and getting it published, my first short story just, well none of them were getting published until, um, and there's a connection here with you that maybe you'll reveal, but I, I picked up the sh uh, short story writer's market, the novel and short story writer's market, and I came across an entry for the Santa Barbara Review, and it said, we are looking for literary fiction, particularly funny literary fiction. Funny you should mention that. <laughs> who, who was the editor of that? Was that you? No. Look at the masthead. Yeah? <laughs> I, I sensed you were there. At any rate, that, that was my... Oh, well. Yeah. It was my first short story that was published, and it was a delight because I got a call from Patricia Letty, who was my immediate subordinate. And it was so interesting because once that was published, I then Xeroxed it and included it with every short story I sent out thereafter. You don't want to do that again because that means you're making them read two stories. But what happened, well, I, want, I did that because I want to prove I'm published. And sure enough, my stories got published much faster. And interestingly, magazines would say, too bad you didn't send us divining to us first because we would have published it. And I said to myself, no you wouldn't because I sent it to you. Right. <laughs> never too late for a little teacherly advice. You never have to worry about proving you've been published. What you've got to prove is that you're having fun. Yeah. Well, Laurie Moore gave me permission yeah. to, to have humor in my short stories. I just love her. And I, I discovered I, I can't not have humor in my work. Even, even this book, I thought it's going to be super serious, mystery, and the reviews are coming in and they're saying, wow, is that funny? Isn't it funny <laughs> that he got that public? No, 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 that's not funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was another question. So with your last book, I got the sense that was your, that was your first foray into crime. Yes. I got the sense that when you were going to not go back into crime, and of course now we see you are. So is this now a new theme moving forward? It would have been a theme, but my present novel is taking place in Iraq. <laughs> and I'm just following my interests. You know, uh, my first novel, I didn't know how to write a novel. I, was, my, I had an agent who said, write a novel. I gave him my collection of short stories that had already been printed in many literary magazines and he said 15% of nothing is nothing I'm not even sending it out write the novel we went back and forth and I finally like alright I'll write a novel and I was talking to a friend of mine saying I just don't 
know how to write a novel. And he said, you know how to write short stories, just write a collection of short stories using the same you know, characters, sort of going back to what you were mentioning. And so that first novel really is a collection of short fiction. It takes place over 40 years. Uh, and then I started teaching uh, children's lit and fell in love with J.K. Rowling. And then, you know, I saw people stand in line for a day to get her next book, and there's a lot to learn from J.K. Rowling. Right. Uh, she never yet has met an adverb she didn't love. <laughs> we kill those, though. I mean, <laughs> all right, more questions. <laughs> Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. And um, I, I used to wiggle letters at him. He was up there, and he just came up with this new one. So, um, did that work out for you? It worked out for me very much in that um, it's probably been my best-selling book. In that, um, not to mention chain bookstores, but Barnes and Noble took it on, and, and so it Yeah, don't cool. mention them. They're, <laughs> they're dying. This place is living. It's great. Um, and the return policy. We don't even want to think about it. <laughs> I don't know if you ever read The Visit to the Goon Squad. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> you didn't like it? I, I loved it. It's yours? It's not mine, no. <laughs> okay, yes and no. Why? How the Pulitzer Prize? Yeah. Well, it won the Pulitzer Prize. It's a challenging book. I gave it to my father, who, like, he didn't get it. My father didn't get it. I loved it. I taught it. You know, I just, I, I just love it. It's short stories, but then it's done not in order. So then you have to figure out what year. Yeah, that's that's what I was. Yeah, that's why it's devastation. At any rate, there's a lot of non-linearity going on now, and. Fiction. Well, there's a lot of non-linearity going on in in um, reality. You can't. <laughs> well, no, seriously, yeah. you can't go more than say 15 or 20 seconds. You know, you're focused on something that's that's immediate. Here, we're we're sitting here talking, and somebody asks a question or says something, and boom, you're thrown back into the past, and it's it's. Very much the idea of storytelling is like driving in a car. Most of the time, you're looking straight ahead, which is where the now is, the reality is. But now and again, you have to look in the rear view mirror to get a little time, and then in the side mirrors for some digressions. Time, if, if you buy into the notion that time is linear, you are buying into one of the bigger vital lies that the Republicans have given <laughs> us. Do you believe that you have to establish time first before no. you mess around with it? I mean, no, I don't at all. Uh, John Rescher would yeah, uh, and and he is, and he writes in in a different way. And this this is this is another interesting point, and and I know Chris believes this too. But every new story, every new novel, 
means that the writer, if he or she is being honest, has to learn how to write all over again. And then drag Lee Walkner up here, and it's the same thing about an actor. An actor can be Hamlet one day and do a wonderful interpretation, but he's going to another play, whether it's Shakespeare or Arthur Miller or Lorraine Hansberry, and that actor has to find himself or herself in terms of the characters that are, are there. So it's a constant sense of, of growth and development. Hi, Lee. I, I think the thing that has changed with narrative structure is um, reflective of what's changed in our culture because now everything is connected through hypertext links. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm in the last free internet generation. So I'm the bubble generation of before internet and with internet. And that's a certain group in history. And so I think as individuals, we used to have more forward narrative. I'm going to mow the lawn and I'm going to do this. And now you can mow the lawn and check your your Facebook and think about something, go to Wikipedia, and then you're on LATimes.com or whatever. And then you start to see that in the arts, all of these juxtapositions of time, and suddenly you get a flat narrative structure where all of the events are um, linked differently. They're not they're not forward uh, to as great a degree as they used to be. You think you got problems. I can remember back when there was no television, so you talk about uh, hyperlink, but but I, I think you're, you're right. It's, it's that sense that story is becoming much more visual and disjointed. It, it moves all over the place. So this is very interesting. So something like Renata Adler, with her narrative and speedboat. No. She can do anything she wants. Well, I'm just wondering what he's saying. I think a lot of people almost preempted that fracturing narrative form. And I'm wondering if they were prescient, because obviously now we have internet, it makes sense. And, and I'm seeing a lot of narratives that I was attracted to when I was a student. Um, I guess what you're saying really illuminates a lot of these very avant-garde writers who are writing in in a way that I thought was reflective of theory that was coming out of France. Uh, but it seems as though some people, writers especially, are right on to the cusp of a new way, a new vision, a new era. Oh, absolutely. And here I'm going to put Chris on, on the, the I'm going to put Chris on the spot with, with something here because I know te uh, Chris has been teaching a lot and what happens when you're trying to make a point about the way story is evolving and some student comes up to you and says, but it says right here in this book that so-and-so does this or Lee Child does this or, or, or um, uh, <laughs> Candace Bushnell does this, so why can't I do it? Or, or John Ritchie does this. Or John Ritchie. Yeah. You know, by the way, one of the great joys of working at USC in its golden age. We were there, right? Golden. Golden for two years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's Gina over there who, who, who still teaches yeah. in the program that's now dead. <laughs> yeah, the, what was the question? <laughs> the, the question is when you're, 
<laughs> oh, yeah. What, 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 what? You're, yeah, yeah. You're I, I was off somewhere else, you know. You're trying to get students to write for the 21st century and, in a sense, recognizing what Lee is talking about, hyperlink and visual, and the student comes to you and says, look, right here, um, uh, William Faulkner yeah. did this. Or, or, or I, I get, James Lee Burke does it right yeah. here. I get very little of that, but... Because they don't read. They don't read. This is, this is what I was, was, was getting to. Uh, I took, I take, I, I teach Introduction to Literature at Santa Monica College now. And I take, because I was in theater and wrote plays and reviewed theater for, for nine years, uh, I feel like you have to see the play, not just read it. So I take my students to the theater and it's exciting because they get excited. And I remember one student coming to me a few years ago, trying to explain what he's seeing at halftime. He says it's it's sort of like a music concert because it's live, but it's sort of like TV too, you know. You know, and I'm just like, wow, where am I? You know, was this before or after marijuana was legal? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Which is why I take him to, to see it. And heard. And heard. Yeah. So. Who did? Oh yeah, Lee. Absolutely. Yeah, I was there. Uh, all right. Any other questions? Yeah. All right. Then th you. Then you. I'd suggest you do the same with a novel. My feeling is a novel is just the shortest the story can be, but it should be precise. And, and what you're saying, that was really interesting. also, uh, whether a poem, a short story, or, or a novel, they all have shape. And what we do, in a sense, is out of the medium, we are sculpting and looking for the shape. I, just, just to show you that I'm not kidding about this, back in the day there was a very famous mead hall that was invaded by a monster. You know, and so we needed a character to come forth and get rid of the monster, which he did, and now the monster's mother comes back looking for him. Yeah, and he's got to go forth and do it again. All right, we call that Beowulf. 1976, there is a similar kind of a monster attacking the shore, and we call that Jaws. Yeah, and what's the difference? The shape of the story is the same. It's just finding ways to, to move it around and put the hyperlink into it. So when Donna Tartt says she takes 12 years to write her novel, what she's doing is writing the way you would a poem by going over the very beginning until you get to the middle, going over the very end, and then writing the 
Well, because look. I think she's one of those who's not. Yeah, start where the story begins. And if you're a poet, it, it begins with you as a poem. And that's where the shape starts. And you are now adjusting it and, and moving it. Lee. Um, Edward Albee, when asked how many of her, his plays were full length, said all of them. Uh, and, I, and I continue to tell my students that. You have to write. As you cannot edit while you're writing. You That's right. Write it. And yeah. then when you're, when you're done with the writing part, you can look at it and edit it. But you follow your characters, and you follow the story, and you find the conflict, and you pursue it, and it'll be as long as it is. Exactly right. Yeah. Jody. This question may be better, better discussed with Samuel, but first of all, you act. <laughs> yeah, Chris. Yeah. Thanks to Samuel. Okay. Yeah. It was wonderful. I believed it. You look like a writer to me. Yeah. I always wanted you to be scrub. Yeah. So yeah, believable character. Voiceover. And and production and direction and you know following the idea of the story. Yeah. He followed the idea of the story, but he didn't give us a story. It's a different, it's an excerpt. Yeah. yeah, it's, an it's sort of the story, and it's not the story, you know? Right. Wonderful. Which I love. Yeah. Good job. He's, he's, yeah. he's created a, a new thing. But we knew, like, like you know, I, 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 I was a playwright. I produced, I directed. And each night, play was different. No matter what direction, you know, I delivered, I wanted my actors every night to do what they wanted to do with my direction. And a lot of times, it was just chaos. It was just a different play, you know, almost every night that it ran, a couple of plays. And, and as a writer for those, I loved it. But, you know, you write a short story, there it is. And you write a, and you produce a film with dialogue and there it is uh, but with a play uh, which sometimes you know yep. it's never the same which yeah. is wild you know which is absolutely dramatic and wild the stories are different and the night's different something falls off the table and you know yeah. it's just incredible yeah, yeah. that's why some of even when they revive the yeah, yeah. Right. That performance, it's live, and you'll never hear it again. Right. What's recorded is recorded, what's live is live. But that's the right. drug for those of us who stay in the theater. Yeah. And, and yeah. I listened to Chris sending out his literary stories, and I used to do that and got published. And I mean, I, you're, you guys are terrific writers. Yeah. But, but for me, what I found was there's, there's no audience there. So I had to stay in the theater because that's where the audience is. Well, now, now I'm going to a yet another medium film, you know, I'm thinking this will be on YouTube and it's on Vimeo now, and maybe it'll find its audience. Although, part of the joy of seeing it tonight was with you here, yeah, a live audience. I want to bring up Samuel just for a second, if, if, if I can ask you a question, Sam, which is, uh, you know, we started off saying that this would be a trailer and then you came to me like the next day with the, this cool idea. How did you come up with it and what, what was your goals here? <clears throat> oh, I, I can't take credit for that. I think we, we did it together. But uh, I think what, what 
the the story was already so cool. It was it was original, and he he asked me to just create a trailer for him, or some type of promo for the book, and I thought that was cool. It was interesting, but I, I just wanted to go a little deeper. I wanted his fan base to just go to a, a, a little a little deeper into the pages, more than just what the text says and what the narrative is telling us. And um, and what's wonderful about your book is you know about any book really, just words. Is, you know, it's all in your imagination. And so I wanted this film to really not just promote you and just have you speaking like most trailers do they're kind of boring I wanted to just bring the audience into your book literally um, but then we spun it around a little bit and we're like you know why don't we just literally take you and put you in your own book like you're, 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 you become your own character and this is an author that becomes enthralled in his own writing and that's so unique and, uh, and I think it shows in that so it was just um, a process but I think we shot the whole thing in oh gosh shot the whole thing in like eight hours Something like that. Yeah. It was like no time. A week ago Sunday, and look at how much it's been edited and original yeah. music added and uh, everything's original and, and my editor is here, Aaron Linquist, my editor. Hey, Such a talented editor and, and friend. And um, so uh, I mean it cost us no sleep. <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to put it together in so little time, but uh, you were wonderful to work with. You, you brought it to life, and thank you for trusting me to you know bring my vision um, from your pages and, and onto the screen. You know, together we're an ultimate team. That's what I have to say. Thank you, Sam. And that makes you postmodern because you're in your own book. Yeah, that's right. In fact, Idolo Calvino is looking down and saying, that's my boy, he's done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So are there any more questions before we get to the serious business of autographing your books? Wouldn't that could happen? Yeah. Any, any more questions? Yes. Yeah, I'm curious a question for both of you. Um, you guys have been writing for many years. How do you think your writing style has changed from your first like shot at writing to your current like last book? Oh, I, I, that's very easy. I've gone from somebody who has described action to somebody who evokes emotion. And again, um, there is this sense you you can't do it alone. I, I certainly read a lot, but I had the good fortune of being in a faculty where, in fact, this is interesting, a lot of my students became faculty and, and suddenly you're in these conversations, whether you're talking to them in, in person or you're reading their, their work. And the message gets through that they don't describe, they evoke and that the basic step is you wanting to describe and seeing that that doesn't work and I learned things from Lee for instance uh, about drama and, and play and in a sense my first draft I do a kind of table reading which is what a director will do when, when a play is produced and what stage directions am I putting in because they don't belong in a novel and then I read some of Gina's long form work and I'm thinking wow what incredible focus how does she get how does she stay in story and that it's just so it's it's a process of growth from where you describe John got up and walked into the room and looked around and what did he see to 
a real sense of John, whoever he is, being in a room and being focused on something or being there for a reason. And that's, that's part of the process and you grow with that. What's your answer? Well, I liked what you were saying earlier that that each new work is like you're a well, beginner you again. Start all over again. Yeah, and uh, Samuel and I are writing this novel together right now, uh, and you see how talented he, he is in, in film. Uh, but he's just this talented person to work with because he's basically pushing me to do what I want to do anyway, but he says more poetry, you know, because I'm writing in first person as if I were him. And I'm doing stuff where he says, that's it, that's the way I felt. And it is about evoking, you know, and, and I knew I couldn't write a novel that takes place in Iraq if I did it on my own, but working with Samuel, yeah, I'm doing it. Wait a minute, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Dangerous. Um, because unless somebody knows differently, um, nobody had ever been 20,000 leagues under the <laughs> sea before Jules Verne. You know, he had to go, and it's, it's focus and, and belief. How does an actor get her character? Um, Absolutely right. I'm not disagreeing with you there. What I'm experiencing right now is I've never been able to ask my protagonist questions and then <laughs> he's physically in the room. Ask! <laughs> well, yeah. See, you've got to knock down that fourth wall and go to the character and say, well, what do you want? What do you want? <laughs> and then you've got to listen. Yeah. Yeah. See, this, this goes back to something Lee was saying, too, about you know, hyperlink and, and whatnot. It's more and more the story is that the author has no business in the story. It's the characters. And if you get Absolutely. in their way, then you are committing some of the really great dramatic sins. It's their story, and we got to butt out and let them do it. You know what's interesting about that, though, and it's so true, uh, one of the exercises I sometimes give my students is grab two characters like Hitler and Einstein and put them in the dentist's office and, and you'll see what, so, what can, can you take a look please? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Marathon man. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the story starts saying itself. However, today, as you're as I'm writing and, and you get a text message and you're looking at it and then you're out of the moment, right? Well, um, Noel is flashing me some hand signals that, that what we're doing is we're um, duplicating something that, that uh, William Goldman said, you know, about start late, and we did, and leave early, and so he... Yeah, we better, yeah. We better, yeah. We better wrap it up. Yeah. All right, so... And I've got cake. We've got cake. I'm pulling out the cake. All right. Are we going to sing now? Okay, we're going to get the cake out. You. Happy birthday. Yay.
so bad that sometimes I have to sing that song to find out what my name is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Young Jesus. You can check them out at youngjesus.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.